Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Thursday, September 9, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is attorney Donna M. Adler, attorney Donna M. Adler of Adler Law, LLC, located in Oak Brook Terrace, Illinois, in the Chicagoland uh, suburban area of DuPage County. Uh, Adler Law focuses on general civil, general civil litigation, immigration, criminal defense, as well as some other areas of law. Donna Adler earned her undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago, as well as a Master's of Arts at UFC. As well, Donna earned her law degree from Northwestern University, and at the University of Notre Dame, Donna earned a Master's of Arts and a Doctor of Philosophy. Today... Donna is here to talk about the Class Action Fairness Act. Donna was our guest on February 25, 2010, when she talked about the usefulness of the class action device in several particular contexts, especially the arena of vindicating consumer rights when businesses cheat big in small ways. She promised to return to talk specifically about the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005. CAFA addresses several abuses of class action, the vehicle, and greatly expanded federal diversity jurisdiction over class actions. We want to remind you that we have a great show for you today, and our Law Talk radio shows air every twice a week. First, the Consumer's Law Journal, which airs every Tuesday, and second, Lawyer's Toolbox, which airs on Thursday afternoons. Again, both Law Talk radio shows air at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. We do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we invite callers' questions either by email at info at alrpra.com or also by dialing 917 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the queue. Telephone number again is area code 917-889-9732, option 1 for the queue. want to let you know briefly about a contest we have for callers and people who submit questions by email. They are eligible to receive free admission to the third quarter social media update 2010. It's a seminar that's going to be held Wednesday, September 22nd here in Chicago, hosted by ALRPRA. Regular price of admission is $25, and participants not located in Chicago will be able to attend via webinar. By way of general disclaimer, this is a general information program. The advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary based on your facts and location. You are encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to comments made on this show. Comments made by callers 
and attorneys and professional guests do not constitute or give rise to attorney-client or other professional relationships. All callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Now, without further ado, we turn to Donna Adler. Welcome her, and look forward to learning a little bit about the Class Action Fairness Act. Well, Nick, thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed being on your show in uh, February of 2010, and um, the class action arena is, of course, a very complex one, and there is um, more ground to cover than can possibly be covered in 40 minutes, um, even with a topic that's um, more defined, such as the Class Action Fairness Act. But I will um, proceed to um, go forward with my presentation and try to educate viewers, some not viewers, but listeners somewhat about the Class Action Fairness Act. First, the Class Action Fairness Act is found at 28 USC, that's Title 28 of the U.S. Code, Section 1711 through 1715. It became effective on February 18, 2005 as Public Law 109-2. It's still too new for all the ramifications of um, the legislation to be known. Now, there were some specific reasons that Congress passed the Class Action Fairness Act, and today what I'm going to try to do is discuss what some of those reasons are. I'm going to try to walk people through the act so that they can see the way some of those provisions meet some of those reasons, and then what I'd like to do is spend um, quite a bit more time on the ways in which the um, act especially expanded federal diversity jurisdiction um, over class action suits. That's very complex in and of itself, so it will take some time to walk through it. But let's go first of all to the reasons for the Class Action Fairness Act. Congress made some findings when it passed Public Law 109-2. It found class action lawsuits to be extremely useful and important as a valuable part of the legal system. I think last time when I was here I talked about um, what the class action actually is. It's um, the lawyer becoming a white knight to vindicate uh, consumer rights, to um, vindicate rights in, in other areas of the law that individual plaintiffs would not have the money um, to go ahead and prosecute on their own. Um, in the consumer rights arena, the amounts of controversy are often too small to make it worth anybody's while. And it's only when those claims are aggregated that it's um, worth an attorney's time to go after after them. So the image of the class action suit properly conceived is the white knight's on the shorts and he's going out to vindicate rights. Well, Congress found that, um, among other things, the white knights were becoming um, dark horses, okay, black knights. So um, Congress wanted to pass legislation, but not only that, not just the lawyers. The um, Congress had an issue with state court judges as well. What were some of the issues. Well, Congress prefaces this legislation by saying that there have been abuses of the class action device that have actually harmed class members that have legitimate claims and defendants um, that have acted res uh, responsibly. Um, they also found that the results of class action litigation prior to the passage of the Act um, adversely affected interstate commerce and undermined public respect for the judicial system. They could be scratching your head saying, what was Congress talking about? Well, Congress goes on to specify um, the harm that has occurred to class members on some occasions previously to the passage of the Act that they were trying to remedy with the um, Class Action Fairness Act. Um, they get very specific. Well, sometimes class members, they said, receive little or no benefit from class actions and are sometimes harmed because counsel are awarded large fees while leaving class members with coupons or awards of little or no value. Second, unjustified awards are made to certain plaintiffs at the expense of other class members. One wonders whether Congress might have had collusive suits in mind um, or suits in which um, 
there are um, only certain state, um, state plaintiffs that are, are given awards and um, defend, or plaintiffs from other states are cut out. In other words, there were disparities in a number of different ways that Congress was concerned about. And then confusing notices are published that prevent class members from being able to fully understand and effectively exercise their rights. Um, in other words, uh, there is a notice um, Often notice is sent out to class members when there's going to be a settlement or something like that, and Congress was uh, concerned that those notices were confusing and didn't give class members a meaningful chance to uh, participate in a settlement or um, exercise some other rights. Okay, so that's what the lawyers were guilty of, according to Congress. Now, state court judges were guilty of something, too, the abuses um, that resulted in interrupting the free flow of interstate commerce. How? Well. Congress said state court judges are keeping cases of national importance out of federal court. Again, a reader would scratch his or her head and say, well, how is that happening? Um, second, sometimes acting in ways that demonstrate bias against out-of-state defendants. And third, making judgments that impose their view of the law on other states and bind the rights of the residents of those states. Okay, so Congress wants to address these, these ills. Um, I would like to talk a little bit more about this first reason that Congress um, specified with respect to state court judges. Congress um, they had mentioned that state court judges are keeping cases of national importance out of federal court. Of course, Congress doesn't specifically say state court judges, but that's, um, that's who, they're, who they're targeting with this. I want to give you an example based on um, the Illinois class action statute. Now, every, every state, okay, many states have class action statutes allowing class action litigation to be brought in state court. Uh, rule 23 is the rule in the federal context that allows class actions to be brought in federal court. But let's look at the Illinois state statute just, at, just for example to see um, how a state court judge um, might construe that act and have a difficulty entertaining a case of national importance in the state court. I'm going to turn to section 2801, that's um, actually 735 of the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure, um, section 7, 735, chapter 735 of the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure, section 2-801. There are certain prerequisites for maintaining a class action in state court, four of them. The first is that the class has to be so numerous that joining all the members as plaintiffs is just impracticable. You can't have all those plaintiffs trying to prosecute the, the case. Second, there have to be questions of fact or law common to the class, class of plaintiffs, which, which common questions predominate over any questions affecting only individual members. Now, think about that um, prong, that requirement in the context of a state court. A state court judge might well look at a case and say, well, some of these plaintiffs that are in this class are not Illinois plaintiffs. They are people, uh, they are people from, people from outside, um, and counsel's trying to include them in this class. And we're not sure, or else the defendant, um, although transacted business in, in the state of Illinois, um, is not actually incorporated in the state of Illinois, and there might be other laws governing. But you have to look at, at questions of law or fact common to the class. If you have, if you have, if you have state members of the class, if you have Illinois members of the class, and then you're trying to include in the class um, 
residents of other states what law actually governs and do you get questions of fact or law common? So a state court judge might have that kind of issue to consider. Third, the representative parties will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. Well, if you have more parties in the class than simply um, Illinois residents, say your defendant is, um, is um, headquartered in Illinois and, and did the dirty deed from Illinois and you're trying to construct a plaintiff's class that is a nationwide class, you select representative parties from a certain state, what, what are the issues there? This might get really hairy in state court if you try to do this. Um, the court further, as the fourth prong, has to decide that the class action is an appropriate method for the fair and efficient adjudication of the controversy. And, a court might well come down and say, well, it's not because there are all these plaintiffs and different questions of what state law applies where, and yes, we know we can create subclasses, but that's going to get messy, and we just don't think we want to certify a class that's so broadly defined that it includes um, people outside, say, the state of Illinois. Well, the wrongdoing of the defendant might affect interstate commerce um, and not just um, the um, wrongdoing occasion to Illinois residents, and that might be one of the things that Congress was trying to get at, as it said that um, state court judges were keeping cases of national importance out of federal court. Now, I don't know how they would be keeping them out of federal court. They would be uh, keeping cases of national importance from um, being litigated through the class action device. Okay, but. Um, this further allegation of keeping cases of national importance out of federal court perhaps has to do with um, um, trying to, the attempts to remove out of, out of state court into federal court. Because the federal diversity rules um, under section 28 U.S.C. Um, section 1332 prior to the passage of CAFA were equally important in um, keeping suits from being removed from state court um, to federal court to address the kinds of issues I just, I just have raised. But, okay, so back to the purposes of CAFA. Um, Congress wanted to assure fair and prompt recoveries for class members with legitimate claims, wanted to um, protect the consideration of interstate cases of national importance under diversity jurisdiction, so it greatly expands a federal diversity jurisdiction under CAFA, and then to benefit society by encouraging innovation and lowering consumer prices. Now, one wonders um, how the Act does that. So we will try to go through the provisions of the Act and see how it addresses some of these concerns. Donna, can we pause right now and take our first sponsor break, and then we will continue? Yes. For those of you who are just tuning in, you are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. We thank you for tuning in. If anyone does want to call later in the show with a question, the telephone number is area code 917-889-9732, option 1. Our first sponsor is the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, call the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Now back to the Lawyer's Toolbox with Attorney Donna Adler talking about the CAFA. Um, we are back to Donna. Donna, let's continue. Okay, so let's go through the various provisions of CAFA. Section, section um, 1711 simply um, talks about the 
reasons in the notes to it and contains some definitions. A class action for the purpose of CAFA means any civil action filed in a district court of the United States under Rule 23. So some of the reasons for CAFA apply both to cases originally filed in federal court and to civil actions that are removed to a district court because the definition of class action also applies to civil actions that are removed to a district court, the court of the United States that was originally filed under a state statute or rule of judicial procedure um, authorizing an action to be brought. Now, of the reasons that we've gone through, the um, concerns that Congress had about attorney overpayment would apply both to cases that were originally filed in federal court and then cases that were originally filed in state court and removed. The concerns that Congress had about cases of national importance being kept out of federal court would apply only to those class actions that were originally filed in state court and that um, subsequently could not previously to CAFA be removed to federal court because of limitations on diversity jurisdiction existing prior to CAFA. Okay, class members is defined as the persons who fall within the definition of a proposed or certified class in a class action. Now, there are several other definitions in Section 1711, but I think that those two are the ones that you need to be aware of um, simply for the purpose of our further discussion. Now, Section 1711 talks quite a bit about settlements in which class members receive coupons because, as you will recall, one of the reasons, uh, one of the concerns that Congress had was that in many class actions, attorneys seem to get the biggest awards and uh, plaintiffs or class plaintiffs would, would simply get coupons by way of settlement of relatively little value. So 1711 talks particularly about coupon settlements and attorney awards when those settlements are, um, are what um, plaintiffs get. It talks about contingent fees and coupon settlements under 1712A. If a proposed settlement in a class action provides for recovery of coupons, then the portion of an attorney's fee award that is attributable to the award of coupons has to be based on the value of, to the class members of the coupons that are redeemed. So the attorney's not going to do any better than the class and will not do as well as the class if there's a coupon settlement. So the um, Congress addressed the concern that attorneys were getting these huge fees and class members were just getting um, coupons of little or no value um, with this provision. Then talks about other attorney's fees, awards, and coupon settlements. Um, several provisions here under, under, under B. If a proposed settlement in a class action provides for recovery of coupons, and a portion of the recovery of coupons is not to be used to determine the attorney's fee, then the attorney's fee award has to be based upon the amount of time that the class counsel reasonably expended working on the action. Now you can bet your bottom dollar that if the coupons are of little or no value to the plaintiff class and counsel comes in with a fee petition in which the time he spends on the case um, amounts to a monetary award that vastly exceeds the value of these coupons to the plaintiff class, the, the court is going to look askance at that and, and probably will decide that the um, time that the class counsel spent prosecuting the class action was not reasonable given the recovery um, that the plaintiffs were to expect. Now, any attorney's fee under, um, under 1712B has to be approved by the court and has to um, include an appropriate attorney's fee, if any, for obtaining equitable relief, including an injunction if applicable. Nothing prohibits 
the application of a lodestar amount, that means an hourly multiplier of determining attorney's fees. So a court has to approve any attorney's fee awarded in a coupon settlement. Attorney's fees can be awarded on a mixed basis, but that gets a little bit more complicated than we have time to discuss. And um, to determine exactly how much the award is worth to plaintiffs, we, experts can be used to make that determination. So the, um, the, the um, Congress was very careful, especially with respect to coupon settlements, to uh, provide that the attorney's fee award would not be at the expense of the class. Now, 1713 is another provision of CAFA that talks about attorney's fees in connection with a settlement. Okay, now this does not have to do necessarily with coupon settlements, but with um, settlements more broadly. The court can, appro can approve a proposed settlement, um, but, but will not approve a proposed settlement under which any class member is obligated to pay sums to class counsel that will result in a net loss in a net loss to a class member unless the court makes a written finding that there are non-monetary benefits to class members that substantially outweigh the monetary loss. So if it looks like um, attorneys on a monetary basis are going to recover way more than the class could, then the court's going to look at that very carefully to assess whether there were other kinds of benefits to class members that, that justify that. I think that 1712 and 1713 um, in, their, in their combined effect um, tend to make attorneys very careful to pursue class actions only um, where statutes specifically allow the recovery of attorney's fees and costs in connection with the class action litigation. So I think one of the effects, although it's too early to tell how this will work out in time, one of the effects of CAFA is to restrict class actions, to narrow down class actions to um, Two, two suits where statutes provide for, um, for an award of reasonable attorney's fees and, and costs. In other words, there are arenas where Congress allows for that, allows for an award of attorney's fees and costs because Congress wants particular kinds of abuses um, addressed. That's just my speculation and, and guesstimate of a probable effect, one probable effect of the Class Action Fairness Act. Again, it's too early to tell what all the ramifications are. 1714 of CAFA talks about protection against discrimination based on geographic locations. So one of the, one of the considerations that the um, court has to take into account in approving a proposed settlement is whether um, the settlement provides for the payment of greater sums to some class members than to others solely based on the fact that um, some class members are located in greater, closer geographical proximity to the court. What the um, Congress is trying to protect there is that all class members get equal treatment and it's not based on what state a particular set of plaintiffs lived in. 1715 provides for notifications to appropriate federal and state officials in the case of a settlement. Uh, Ten days after a proposed settlement of a class action is filed in court. Every defendant that's participating in the, every defendant that's participating in the proposed settlement has to serve upon the appropriate state official of each state in which a class member resides and an appropriate federal official a notice of the proposed settlement. Um, that consists in a copy of the complaint, in any materials filed with the complaint, in any amended complaints, materials like that, notice of any scheduled judicial hearing in the class action, any proposed or final notification to class members, 
any proposed or final class action settlement, and any settlement or other agreement that's made between counsel and counsel for the defendants, and any final notice um, or notice of dismissal. If it's possible, the names of class members who reside in each state also have to be furnished, as well as the estimated proportionate share of their claims to the entire settlement. And um, if the provision of that um, information is not feasible in a reasonable estimate of the number of class members. This kind of provision puts state officials on notice to be aware of um, what defendants are doing in their state, possibly one of the reasons Congress wants um, the Attorney General or an appropriate state official notified is to allow the Attorney General of that state time to see if there's any reason for any action against a, a particular defendant, or perhaps it um, is so the Attorney General can take some action in um, helping to facilitate um, public information about the class action, but the but Section 1715 doesn't impose any duty on state officials to provide notice to people within the state. That's something that um, has to happen within the context of the class action suit itself. The counsel, um, plaintiff's counsel have to do that and, um, and others have to participate in, in that. But it provides for greater awareness. Those, in fact, are the provisions of the Class Action Fairness Act, but they also made the Act make some changes to federal diversity jurisdiction. And I want to spend um, quite a bit of time talking about, about these. But before I do, I want to, to pause and see whether um, Nick has any uh, questions or any thoughts about a need to clarify anything. Donna, I don't have any questions. I think that was a very thorough recitation of the nuances of the different sections of the code and how things will benefit society um, and sort of keep uh, our attorneys and state court judges in check as the class actions are litigated. It sounds like the, progress, the congressional purpose behind that, although we sort of have to speculate, um, and can only draw our own conclusions. It sounds like things are, are on the right track and we have a really good piece of legislation here that provides for more fairness across the board. Well, so that I don't forget to do this, I want to do this now while we still have plenty of time in the program before I go on to discuss diversity. But there are uh, several articles that um, are simply too lengthy to discuss in detail with the audience here that I want to give the audience some citations to if they're dealing with the Class Action Fairness Act. Um, these are very meaty articles and I think um, will be helpful to practitioners in a number of ways. It will help people who are just getting into class action litigation to understand the impact of the Class Action Fairness Act on um, in the class action arena um, at large, so they can make decisions about whether to, to bring suits in state court or whether to remove them to federal court. Uh, two articles. One, um, last name of the author is Erie. The name of the article is The Class Action Fairness Act and Some, Fed and some Federalism Implications of Diversity Jurisdiction. Um, that's 48 William and Mary Law Review, 1247 published in 2007. I hope I have the name of that author right, but I know that the um, citation to the law review article is, uh, is correct. 18 ALR Fed 2nd, 223. There's an article, Construction and Application of the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005, Public Law 109-2.119. So let me repeat those sites again. 48 William and Mary Law Review, 1247 published in 2007, and 18 ALR Fed 2nd, 223, Construction and Application of the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005. Both lengthy, meaty articles that um, ought to give practitioners quite a bit of guidance. Let's talk about 
Before we start, before we go into the actual changes to the federal diversity, let's pause for a second commercial break. Um, for those of you tuning in recently or listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio, we always encourage our callers' questions at area code 917-889-9732, option one. Again, 917-889-9732, option one for the caller queue. Our second sponsor is Jim Thompson. If you want to get clients now, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. Jim Thompson's program is called Get Clients Now, and he'll help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit Midwest consultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. Of course, you can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Now, without further ado, we'll go back to Donna Adler, who's talking about CAFA. She gave us some wonderful recitations of the statutory provisions at the beginning of the show and then just recently gave us some excellent articles that are more expansive on point. And now we're going to turn back to Donna for some more information on the expanse uh, and changes to federal di diversity. Okay. The Federal Class Action Diversity Rules are 28 U.S.C. Section 1332, beginning with D1, going on to D2, and then with some exceptions um, later on in subsection D. So we'll talk about as much of that as we have time to do. But um, the um, 1332D provides that the federal district courts will have original jurisdiction of any civil action in which the matter in controversy exceeds the sum or value of $5 million exclusive of interest and cost and is a class action in which, and then it gives several, um, several, several prongs of defining the diversity, which we'll go into. But I want to focus on the diversity amount, that $5 million value. You might be scratching your head and saying, wait a minute, though. The, 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 the regular diversity rules provide that um, the jurisdictional amount is $75,000. So does this mean that each person in the, um, in the plaintiff's class has to have a $5 million claim? Absolutely not. Uh, 1332D6 makes it clear that the claims of the individual members are aggregated to determine whether the amount in controversy exceeds $5 million. What you have to remember there is that the $5 million jurisdictional amount aggregated has to be exclusive of interest and cost. And you can aggregate all the, the claims of the plaintiff's class. Okay, so it's in the aggregate $5 million. And if you have um, any class action, um, well, I don't want to say worth its salt because that's not true. They won't all be um, not worth their salt if they're not worth um, $5 million. But at least the federal courts say it's worth its salt and it has likely to have an impact on interstate commerce if we have at least that kind of jurisdictional amount. Okay, so the first requirement is that the claims in the aggregate have to, have to um, exceed the sum or value of $5 million. Now, what other requirements of diversity are there? Okay, now, it's got to be a class action in which any member of a class of plaintiffs is a citizen of a state different from any defendant. Wow, what an expansion of diversity. That's minimal diversity. Compare 1332A1, um, where a dispute has to be between citizens of different states. Imagine class action prior to CAFA where you had a plaintiff class that you were trying to get certified and you had defendants and you had one plaintiff, 
or several plaintiffs that um, that were um, from the same states as the defendants, well, that would have destroyed diversity prior to CAFA. And um, 1332D um, says, look, um, we want these uh, courts. For, we want these. Uh, we want these cases from the state courts to be able to make it, okay, to federal court, and we don't want the federal normal federal diversity rules to defeat um, these actions when they have an impact on interstate commerce. So let's let's allow minimal diversity in the class action context. So you can imagine many different scenarios. You can imagine how widely that expands diversity jurisdiction in a class action. Okay. Well. Uh, another context for diversity would be that any members of the class of plaintiffs is a foreign state or a citizen or subject of a foreign state. And any defendant is a citizen of a state. Okay, that's, that's B. I want you to um, consider the third context for diversity in class actions. Any member of a class of plaintiffs is a citizen of a state and any defendant is a foreign state or a citizen or subject of a foreign state. Now you have to, you have to compare these diversity provisions with 1332, uh, with 1332 um, A2, 3, and 4. Okay, where um, the dispute in the normal diversity context has to be between citizens of a state and citizens or subject of a foreign state or between citizens of different states in which citizens or subjects of foreign state are additional parties, or disputes between a foreign state as plaintiff and citizens of a state or of different states. Now, how, how, what is the comparison here? Note that under the normal diversity rules, there's no explicit provision for a foreign state to be a defendant. The way in which the um, expansion of diversity jurisdiction over CAFA is written on its face allows for a foreign state to be a defendant. So that might be a, a point of interest for someone wanting to research whether that's actually um, whether that's actually possible or whether there are other legal problems with the idea of having a foreign state be a defendant in um, in a federal suit. Now there are some exceptions to diversity jurisdiction thus expanded by CAFA um, in the context of 28 U.S.C. Section 1332. What are those exceptions? The first is provided in 1332 D3. A district court may, but does not have to, decline to exercise diversity jurisdiction as expanded in the interest of justice given the totality of circumstances when what? when one-third of the plaintiff classes in the aggregate, but less than two-thirds of the plaintiff classes in the aggregate, and the primary defendants are all citizens of the state in which the action was originally filed. The federal court in that particular situation has, has the discretion to say, look, it looks like most of these plaintiffs are from one state, and I don't think that given that situation, and it looks like the defendants, um, the primary defendants are citizens of the same state. I don't think it's really in the interest to remove um, to remove this case from a state court because perhaps that the district court, considering other factors such as what law would actually apply in in connection with the suit, whether there were really any any questions of a conflict of laws 
or um, other such factors, the district court might make a decision not to allow that kind of suit into into a federal into the federal forum. There are factors that are specified in 1332 D3 that a court should look at. The court has to consider in exercising its jurisdiction whether matters of national or interstate interest are involved in the suit. Now, given the breadth of the Commerce Clause, one might wonder um, whether a court could ever just discount an effect on interstate commerce. But another factor, whether the laws of the state of the original filing of the suit um, would govern or whether laws of other states would govern as well. Whether the class action was deliberately pled in the first place to avoid federal jurisdiction, federal diversity jurisdiction. Whether the action was brought in a forum with a distinct connection to class members um, and the alleged harm and um, to, to an access to the defendants. Whether the number of plaintiffs who are citizens of the state of original filing is greatly, uh, greatly exceeds the number of citizens from any other state and whether uh, during a three-year period preceding the filing of the class action, one or more other class actions asserting the same or similar claims on behalf of the same or other persons have been filed. For example, the district court might decide, why don't these plaintiffs just intervene in one of these other suits, and why should we uh, spend federal time on, on this case? Okay, now, there are other limitations on uh, the expanded diversity jurisdiction. 1332 D4 is a mandatory section dealing with um, a district court's exercise of jurisdiction. The district court will decline to exercise jurisdiction, will decline, so no discretion there, when more than two-thirds of the members of all plaintiff classes in the aggregate are citizens of the state in which the action was originally filed, and, and at least one defendant doesn't say primary defendant, but at least one defendant is from uh, from whom significant relief is sought, um, resides in the same state, and um, if that conduct forms a significant basis for the claim. So it doesn't have to be the only defendant um, of, that, of that stature. It just has to be one defendant. And, okay, a couple more um, prongs that have to be satisfied in order to mandate uh, denial of um, a denial of, of diversity jurisdiction. The principal injuries resulting from the alleged conduct or related conduct of each defendant have to be incurred in the state in which the action was originally filed. And again, during the three-year period preceding the filing of the class action, no other class action has been filed asserting the same or similar factual allegations against any of the defendants on behalf of the same or other persons. Okay, there are some other cases in which the court must decline to exercise jurisdiction under Section 1332. When two-thirds or more than two-thirds of the members of all proposed plaintiff classes in the aggregate and the primary defendants are citizens of the state in which the action um, was originally filed. 1332 D5 um, is not um, a section in which um, the court has, is not a section saying that the court has to decline the exercise of diversity jurisdiction. It's simply a section saying that there are certain class actions to which the expansion of jurisdiction simply does not apply. It's, it's of value to go through this section because a cursory reading um, might spark the conclusion that um, all cases that are similar to what's mentioned in 1332 D5 are prohibited as class actions in federal court, but that would be, um, that would be a mistake. Um, class, action, class action diversity rules do not apply where the primary defendants are states. 
presumably U.S. states, because the way that provision is written, um, it's written with the capitalization of states that is consistent with um, the use of the capitalization of, the, of states to apply just to U.S. states. State officials or other government entities against whom the district court may be foreclosed from order relief. But, but look at the wording. Where the primary defendants are such persons. It doesn't say um, where such persons are defendants. So it's worth counsel's close analysis um, to determine um, whether class action can be brought when some such persons are defendants but they're not the primary defendants. 1332 D9 makes clear also that the diversity rules don't apply, expanded diversity rules don't apply to any class action that solely, again pay attention to that word, that solely involves a claim concerning a security defined by 16F3 of the Securities Act of 1933 and Section 28F5E of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Someone not reading that carefully might say, I'm just not going to bother with a securities class action. Stop, wait, look, listen, and look at that word solely. Okay, it doesn't say you can't use the class action device in those contexts. It says you can't use the class action device when it solely involves a claim like that. Can't, uh, can't use the class action diversity, expand the class action diversity rules to remove something to federal court when um, it solely involves a claim relating to internal affairs or governance of a corporation or other form of business enterprise. Again, be careful. That word solely contains a universe and it arises under or by virtue of the laws of the state in which such corporation or business enterprise is incorporated. So two things to analyze there. Um, can't use the diversity rules when, uh, expand the diversity rules when the class action solely involves a claim relating to internal affairs or governance and when the class action arises under or by virtue of the laws of the state in which the corporation is incorporated. If either one of those state two prongs is not satisfied, then the door is still open to a possible removal from state court to federal court of a class action. Um, 1332 D9 also makes clear that the expanded diversity rules do not relate to rights duties, including fiduciary duties, and obligations relating to or created by or pursuant to any security as defined under Section 2A1 of the Securities Act of 1933 and the regulations issued thereunder. But again, that's subject to the same language of solely, when it solely involves a claim relating to that. Okay, so 1332 um, limits um, limits the um, um, diversity jurisdiction. So you need to look at all that as you analyze um, the question whether your particular class action can be removed from state court to, um, to federal court. You might be um, surprised by, um, or should know about, maybe you're not surprised by it, but Section 1332 D11A allows a mass action, something filed as a mass action in state court to be treated as a class action for purposes of removing it from state court to federal court under um, diversity rules. 1332 D11A says that a mass action is a class action removable under paragraphs 2 through, um, two through 11 of um, Section D if it otherwise meets the provisions of those paragraphs. Well, what is a mass action and how does it differ from class action? A mass action is defined in um, section 1332 D11B as any civil action with some exception where the monetary relief claims of 100 or more persons are proposed to be tried jointly 
on the ground that the plaintiff's claims involve common questions of law or fact. So you've got a hundred different plaintiffs joining together to, um, to prosecute one suit. In, in that kind of situation, the um, Congress was anxious that those also be treated like class actions and saw no reason really to separate the mass action of that kind from, from the class action. That's basically what you need to know about diversity. As you can see, it's very complex, and um, in the abstract, it's daunting. You actually have to have a state court case that you're looking at, and and look at it with this uh, with these diversity rules by your side as you try to figure out what kind of animal is my state court case, and does it appear to satisfy? Very systematically, go through the sections of uh, 1332D. Does it appear to come within the um, jurisdictional limit? First of all, does it appear to satisfy? satisfy the, um, the prongs of 1332D of two in terms of who the parties are, and then does it come within any of these exceptions that the Act defines? And if it appears to come within an exception, um, is that language of solely involved um, in my analysis of the claim in any way? So you can see how an analysis might get very um, lengthy and, and um, involved in connection with removing a, a case from state court to federal court. Certainly. Donna, let's pause for our third sponsor break. For anyone who has just recently tuned in, you're listening to The Lawyer's Toolbox on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. We broadcast every Thursday at 3 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. On The Lawyer's Toolbox, we seek to bring you attorneys who have practice area information as well as other professionals who have advice on general practice management. Our third sponsor, by the way, first we want to let you know also if you want to call in and have a question, um, telephone number is 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732, option one. You can always also email me a question at info, I-N-F-O, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com if you have any questions about our show or would like to be connected to any guests of the show, um, please feel free to send us a request. Our third sponsor is credit damage expert George Finder. He is an expert who can put an actual dollar amount on credit damages. George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas such as personal injury, employment law, family, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions in your intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Right now, any of our listeners who contact George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio will receive, free of charge, one hour of CLE presentation. Grab a pen and take down the email address to respond to the special offer. It is creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Again, creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder's website is full of resources. Please visit creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and credit damage recovery. Again, credit damages apply to several different types of cases. Most attorneys are not used to and a credit damage 
analysis component uh, because it is something that is, I suppose, newer within the past decade and uh, more courts are adopting this and George, again, is a recurring guest on our show and should be along again on our guest as a guest shortly uh, within the next several weeks. So do check for uh, George Fine's appearances because it's a nice opportunity to call and ask him a question. Now back to CAFA and the expansions of uh, federal diversity and more on CAFA. We have our last 15 minutes with Donna Adler. Okay, I think that um, I've given my basic presentation. I want to make um, just a few comments. First, while you were doing that station break, Nick, I went back and um, looked up my site just to double check to the William and Mary Law Review. And I want to um, give a slightly corrected site to that. Um, the 48 William and Mary Law Review 1247 is correct. The name of the article is Erie. Erie is the name of the case of a case. Erie, the Class Action Fairness Act, and some federalism implications of diversity jurisdiction. And the author of that article is David Marcus. So I had to just look up my site to that to make sure that um, my notes, um, the ambiguity in my notes, was, was clarified. Um, I want to um, just um, reflect a little bit on what CAFA does in connection with the construction, possibly does in connection with the construction of state law. At the beginning of our hour together, I took you to um, a provision of the, of the Illinois Code of Civil Procedures that provides for maintaining class actions and provides the prerequisites for class action. It was section, section 5-2-801 of Chapter 735 of the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure. One thing that um, CAFA certainly does with respect not only to, um, to the Illinois provision, but to other state law class action provisions is to give rise to um, this kind of situation. Under diversity jurisdiction, a particular class action could, remove, could be removed from state court to federal court even before a determination had been made um, concerning whether the class should be certified. Perhaps the class gets filed in, class action gets filed in state court, and then plaintiff's counsel decides, let's remove this to federal court. We can do it under the uh, expanded diversity rules of, of CAFA, and we think that perhaps we might fare better with a federal court's determination of these uh, four factors under, under the Illinois Act than we would under a state court's determination of whether those factors are satisfied. That's just a little bit dicey because in diversity jurisdiction, um, state law is supposed to apply to um, address those questions, but I could very easily see happening, okay, in federal court, uh, the kind of situation in which the federal court begins to construe Section 201, Section 2-801 and, and uh, comparable provisions of other state statutes um, and say, look, the class is numerous, so numerous and the federal court wouldn't differ significantly from what the state court's determination would be. But then when you get to prong, prong two, there are questions of fact law common to the class, which common questions predominate over any questions affecting only individual class members. Well, the federal court is not going to have I have nearly as much trouble with the fact that there are other state laws to construe um, and not just the law of one state as a state court might. So in the federal court's construction of the state legislation, it is um, perhaps possible that we get a different and more expanded kind of jurisprudence that will actually expand the meaning of those, um, of those, of those um, expand the application of those prongs of the state court acts. Now, 
Um, that's just my prediction on what could happen, and what I think would make sense in view of the expansion of diversity prior to the certification of a class, and what would the ultimate result of a development like that be? You might have the state courts um, conforming their, their decisions more closely to um, federal court decisions so that what you get is a more unified um, set a more unified body of jurisprudence statewide that marches in line with, um, with um, federal court jurisprudence. So I think that that is at least one intent behind the expansion of diversity of jurisdiction and perhaps a, a predictable effect of it. But again, all the ramifications of um, the expansion of, of the diversity rules in this context are, uh, are not played out. It's still too recent to be able to um, to see what some of the effects are. But that's, um, that's interesting and a little bit scary because, <laughs> because one, one could ask of oneself, well, in what other arenas is Congress going to decide that um, state courts should march in line with the Fed and um, shouldn't Congress be, um, be um, doing some things with um, jurisdiction um, on the federal level that would, would address some of, those, um, some of those issues. If you can do it in the context of class actions, you could just certainly do it in the context of um, other kinds of um, legal issues, but that's beyond the scope of today's presentation. I just raise um, it in the class action context as one possible ramification. So that's basically all I have, um, Nick, and it would be interesting if we had some listeners call in and either talk about their experience with CAFA um, or raise other uh, possibilities for what this legislation means in the long run. Well, we do have about eight minutes left, and I'll repeat that number again if anyone is wanting to call in. Again, callers, you do remain confidential. Uh, 917-889-9732, option one. Again, area code 917-889-9732, option one. Um, Donna, I do have a couple short questions. Um, they may you know, be quite simple, but determining $5 million in ag Aggregate, um, aggregate amount in controversy. Um, how how does one go about doing that if you don't know how many people are in the class yet? What's a general rule for people who've never done this before? Or is there a resource that they can go to to learn how to go through some of those criteria? Well, I'm not sure there's one answer to that question, Nick. I think that um, it, it certainly might be worth on someone's while to get uh, an expert involved. Um, pretty soon after the, the, the start of litigation to help answer some of those questions. Um, mm -hmm. But I think you raise a very good question with respect to what if I don't know how many, how many people are in the class. That's a very, that's a, that's a very difficult, thorny kind of issue. Um, sometimes it will be clear-cut. If you have a consumer class action, you're dealing with um, um, customers who have been sold a particular appliance and, um, you know, billed in an unfair way. It might be easier to determine because you can, um, you can ask for um, some kind of discovery from, from um, defendants to, to help determine what the number of class members is. But um, it's, it's, uh, so if you're in state court and you're trying to determine whether to remove the federal court, you're not going to know the answer to that question right away. You might have to do a little bit of discovery in the state court context before you, you make that decision. But getting an expert on board might help. Um, there isn't one clear-cut answer to that question. That will be a question that you have to address on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay. Now, what does it look like if you have someone who contacts you and says, Donna, I heard you on the show, and um, you know, I, I think I have a client who may have a class action situation here, but let's say the counsel calling you um, has never worked with class actions before, but they are adept enough to spot that they have a class action. Are you open to working with those attorneys? Is that something that you do? Sure, I would work. I would work with attorneys like that. I've done. I've done some class action work. 
Okay, so you do whether co a co-counsel situation. Yes, I have done that. Okay, and as well, you would also counsel some of those attorneys if they want to, you know, call you. Are you open for that as well? Sure, I'm open for it. How would they get a hold of you? My um, contact information, my office number is 630-310-8302. My email address is adlerlaw, A-D-L-E-R-L-A-W, at comcast.net. Okay, wonderful. Can we have the phone number one more time? 630-310-8302. All right, very good. Now, do look forward to additional appearances by Attorney Donna Adler on some different topics, and we will promote those later um, on Facebook, of course, and we will be adding to the ALRPRA website a specific page with the radio show links. Um, and we're going to have podcasts on there as well, so you can download those to uh, an MP3 player uh, to listen later. So those are all things that are coming in the future um, as our show continues to grow. So again, if you have any questions, please feel free to uh, send an email to Donna Adler or to myself. And I want to thank Donna Adler for uh, appearing today and talking about CAFA and the expanded class action diversity under the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005. Thank you, Donna. You're welcome, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be on, on the show. All right. I'd also like to thank our listeners out there for being loyal and tuning in to the Lawyer's Toolbox on Thursdays and as well to the Consumer's Law Journal on Tuesdays. ALR PRA Law Talk Radio sponsors are also of thanks. We want to thank the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme as well as Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group and, of course, last but not least, credit damage expert George Finder. Again, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary based on your facts and location. You are always encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to comments made on this show. Comments made by callers and attorneys and professional guests generally do not constitute or other, uh, otherwise create an attorney-client or other professional relationship. All callers on our show do remain confidential and this broadcast rights are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Again, ALRPRA Law Talk Radio's mission is to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences together and share the tips and tools as well as practice area information that they can use to all be better informed practitioners and consumers as we all navigate the always evolving practice of law. With guests and listeners located nationwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Always, ALRPRA's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Thank you again, and please tune in next week for, the again, the Consumer's Law Journal on Tuesday at 3 p.m. and the Lawyer's Toolbox at 3 p.m. And don't worry if you miss an episode. You can always go to ALRPRA.com. Again, that's ALRPRA.com. And you can listen to any of our broadcast uh, links on the archives there, as well as you can search on Facebook on the ALRPRA site. So, again, thank you, Donna Adler, uh, and thank you to our guests and our sponsors. We look forward to hearing from you and talking to you next week. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, 
Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.